How do we make the world a better place? I think many of us, uh, particularly those who come from academia or just nerds like me who like to read books, think that the best way to do this is to articulate uh, idea, grand in scope and vision, that allows individuals to see the invisible chains that bind us to systems of injustice and to point to a new way and path forward. You hear this quite often with uh, terms like the Green New Deal. But I think that when we look at how most people uh, see the world day to day, uh, where they don't have the time or luxury to read uh, a book by Noam Chomsky or to sit down and watch an interview with uh, Michelle Alexander or a Bill McKibben, that signs and symbols historically have been the most powerful way for progressives or people like me, leftists, to get their message out to a mass audience in a way that will resonate with power and with understanding. The Hong Kong protests have been fascinating in that they have galvanized, uh, at this point, over three million people to come out of their homes, of their day-to-day -day lives, from office jobs to students to blue-collar workers to white-collar professionals in protesting for universal demands of sovereignty and democracy. This has not been accomplished by lengthy essays, florid prose, or beautiful speeches, but by using specific signs and symbols, both to represent the injustice that many Hong Kongers feel about their situation, as well as to inspire in them courage and conviction as to the actions they need to take to make social change. Today, I had the privilege to speak to Isabella Steger, a reporter at Quartz, formerly of the Wall Street Journal. Isabella is a multilingual, multi-talented Hong Kong reporter who has been following the minutiae and symbols of the Hong Kong protests with great interest. I talked to her about what signs are emerging from the protests, the symbols that the protesters are rallying around, and what possible lessons we can take globally as we try to work for change by looking at the Hong Kong protests as a model that we can study. If you're interested, you can find out more by checking out our podcast, our YouTube channel, or our website, asiaarttours.com. All right, here's my chat with Isabella.
2014 for the protests known as the Umbrella Revolution, we saw them associated with leaders, in particular uh, Joshua Wong, the young activist, and the political party that he created, Demasisto. These protests in 2019 have been um, considered to be much more leaderless or even horizontalist in their structure, lacking sort of figures who are um, controlling the actions of the protesters. I'm wondering if that is a fair assessment of the uh, current situation in Hong Kong. Yeah, you're right. Back then, there was definitely student groups that were prominent um, in the leadership. So university student groups, and then, as you said, Demisista, which was known as something else uh, back then. Um, a group of younger, um, even people in the late teens, a uh, group of students. And then also politicians, lawmakers played a much more prominent role as well. But that actually led to a lot of internal disagreement and squabbles and um, sometimes pretty ugly disagreements, actually. And people felt that it wasn't good to have um, a leader, uh, leaders in a movement like this because they were not really um, anointed to be leaders as such. Um, perhaps with the exception of, say, somebody like the Occupy Trio, which includes um, Benny Tai now in prison, um, who came up with the idea of um, Occupy Central at the beginning, but even what turned out afterwards in the protest was not really in the same uh, in the same vision that um, Benny and co. had envisaged. But I guess by definition of the fact that they had come up with this plan of civil disobedience, they could have been considered the leaders. But anyway, I think perhaps people had um, either learned from the squabbles of that movement or because this thing just happened so... Um, organically and unexpectedly um, and it's remained that way with no leaders and it seems to have been working well so far in terms of sustaining the actions. So 2014 there was a very strong what we would call nativist element uh, within the protests where people were virulently anti-China. There were sort of I guess you could even say slurs in Cantonese that would be printed in newspapers or be part of the language of protesters calling the Chinese locusts saying, get out. And we contrast that with uh, 2019, where the protesters made a conscious choice to go to major shopping centers that are popular with mainland tourists and talk to them in Mandarin to do airdrops through Apple iPhones, giving airdrop messages to Chinese tourists. Um, a much more friendly, welcoming tone that seems to be a much more threatening tactic to the uh, Communist Party of China this sort of intercultural communication, uh, intercountry communication. Could you talk a bit about how the protests have shifted from 2014 from anti-China uh, to why the protesters have decided to take a much more friendly uh, set of tactics in trying to let Chinese tourists know about what's going on in Hong Kong? Yeah, um, I think that, uh, so first of all, uh, I don't know, and I don't think anyone really knows who came up with this strategy. Again, these things sort of happen organically or spontaneously online um, in group discussions, sometimes private ones, sometimes public threads. It's very hard to trace that decision back to any one person or group. Um, I would say that it's not that people are now, you know, in some way sort of friendly or warming up to um, Chinese tourists. I think the animosity is still very much there. And I think even on the recent protests on um, the last weekend that were in Kowloon, uh, an area with many, many tourists, I think that the approach was not born out of, um, 
you know, a newfound sort of solidarity with the tourists by any means. But I think perhaps what it does show is that people have, there's a maturation in the thinking and understanding among Hong Kong people of just um, how deeply connected the situation on the mainland is with the current situation in Hong Kong. So you can't really just, um, you know, draw a line between the two and say, well, I only care about Hong Kong and I don't care about China. So um, an illustration of that is, um, for example, there were many... Um, leaflets and posters this time uh, in the recent protest talking about the dissidents who are in jail in China. So that's um, lawyers or Uyghur activists or even Tibetan activists. And I saw their names printed on big um, banners. And uh, as you said, they were airdropped to people. Um, that's a level of understanding and sophistication that I didn't really see in 2014. And it may just be that people are now paying much more attention, as I said, to what's in the news. Uh, at the same time, the news has been gotten much grimmer, has been getting grimmer uh, with the camps in Xinjiang, for example. Um, so I think people are learning that in order to get more people on side, you have to broaden out this topic beyond just being about Hong Kong. And they've broadened it in other ways too, like taking it to the G20, for example. So it's become a much more... Um, global, um, I think a smarter approach to um, getting the message out, whereas the nativist thing, like you said, sometimes really reeked of just um, downright discrimination, very ugly slogans, that wasn't really winning uh, much sympathy in the way that um, maybe a smarter tactic is now. For the protesters, who are sort of the figures who at this point have become symbols, or where within Hong Kong, be it a site with a uh, PRC military or um, a site that has become more uh, associated with the mainland. What are some of the symbols that have really animated the protesters? Not the policies per se, but symbols. Have, have figures like a Carrie Lamb become a symbol that are far greater than her policies in terms of representing a lot of uh, separate, disparate grievances that have been bubbling to the surface in Hong Kong for some time. Yeah, uh, I think it's interesting. I think back then in the previous um, administration, so prior to Carrie Lam, uh, C.Y. Leung was in power. And back then, I think a lot of people felt he really was the apex of sort of unpopularity and badness among people. You know, there was a lot of imagery uh, being um, spread around of him just like literally as a devil with devil horns and such. Um, uh, and it's very hard to imagine. I think it's hard for people to imagine that there was somebody that could come after him that could elicit uh, the same level, if not more, uh, uh, hatred and dislike among the general population. Um, Carrie Lam is a little bit more difficult, maybe, I think, for people to sort of satirize in that same way. Uh, you know, the sort of devil horn thing, because he really was seen then as a, a communist accomplice. She, um, because of her pedigree as a long-serving, loyal, hard-working civil servant, she um, had at the beginning evoked a much more kind of, um, or she had wanted to evoke a much more sort of maternalistic sort of um, image of her sort of always wearing um, sort of these Chinese dresses, the Chong Sam, and uh, pledging to be, you know, different to her predecessor and things. So at the beginning, um, the imagery around her was not as... Um, loud or as, um, I guess, interesting even as uh, CY Lungs, but um, very, uh, as I guess, in the last year or so, as people sort of, it became increasingly evident to them that she's, um, I don't think they quite call her a devil, but they do really see her as just an extension of um, the Communist Party. And so a lot of the imagery is really about her um, being with Xi Jinping in multiple guises. So one cartoon that I saw someone carrying was her as 
uh, Piglet from uh, the Winnie the Pooh um, uh, cartoons, and then she obviously as Winnie the Pooh. Um, you know, things like this that sort of paint her in a kind of subservient role. And, um, but also, you know, she said things that have really inflamed people. Um, so she compared herself to a mother who, um, you know, was just, you know, sort of maternalistically taking care of the people and then compared Hong Kong people to spoiled children. Um, so again, like, I think it's a, it's a different sort of feeling that she elicits to that sort of evil one that her predecessor had. But like I said, people are really latching onto this, um, symbolism that she's created for herself as this maternalistic figure like a mother that nobody wants basically so a lot of the jokes have actually centered around motherhood um and not in a good way i'm wondering uh have have hong kong residents or uh china watchers or journalists been aware in terms of the creeping symbols that the party has tried to introduce into hong kong in terms of uh laws about the national anthem laws about the introduction of Mandarin, how the Chinese flag may become more and more uh, looming over the consciousness of Hong Kong. What have been some of the symbols that the, the CCP itself has tried to introduce to gradually raise the, the boiling pot, uh, so to speak, uh, and get people uh, habituated to a transition to Chinese communist rule? Yeah, I think you're right. I think, um, I mean, it actually goes back all the way to, you know, maybe a good one would be 2012 when they tried to introduce mandatory patriotic education. Uh, you know, that, those 2012 protests against that are really seen as, um, the big watershed before the umbrella movement, uh, in terms of the protest movement here. Um, that was retracted in the end, actually. So, um, you can see that when there are, very uh, serious attempts um, like that to erode on Hong Kong people's, like you said, culture, way of life, people do push back. And um, apart from that, there's been many other things. So you mentioned um, the national anthem, you know, criminalizing, um, not standing for the national anthem, um, you know, the uh, introduction of, uh, and that's actually a really big thing because people had been booing the Chinese national anthem a lot at sports games. Um, that really became something that like galvanized Hong Kong people. And um, there's other symbols too, big physical physical symbols, you know, like the um, high-speed rail station and that's in Kowloon, where there's um, mainland Chinese police being stationed there. Uh, it's seen as one of many sort of white elephant projects that people here really don't want and feel that they don't need because there's many other problems here that should be solved with that money. Um, poverty, housing problems, education, and um, another white elephant project that people... Um, say are uh, angry about is the bridge to Zhuhai, the very, very long uh, sea bridge. Um, again, another thing that is symbolic in, in physically connecting Hong Kong in a much closer way to the mainland China. And now a lot of talk about the Greater Bay Area, the region around the Pearl River Delta, again, further integration of Hong Kong into the mainland, um, not in a quite a absolute physical way yet but you know the language around that sort of like you know it's the same place and people can live there but work here or like get benefits if they want to set up in china but um you know not really set using the language of you know we're, we're fully absorbing you yet but the signs have been very clear to hong kong people for many many years even if it hasn't been so clear to uh, foreign observers who might take um pay attention to major things, sort of like the FT journalist who was denied a visa, for example, but alongside that for many, many years, there's already been many attempts to erode Hong Kong's autonomy. In terms of the um, these battles over free speech or criticism, I uh, would like to draw a parallel that I don't think anyone has. This is a world exclusive, 
between Denise Ho and the Dixie Chicks um, because uh, she's one of the few artists who is speaking out. She was just at the UN and uh, gave a, a short but powerful speech. Uh, we know it was powerful because uh, the Chinese representative at that particular uh, summit uh, tried to interrupt her twice. Um, but she has been willing to... You lose a lot of money when you speak out against China because if you're a canto pop singer or if you're uh, singing, uh, if you're a K-pop singer or uh, a pop star or musician or cultural figure in um, Taiwan, you can't show your movies, you can't do concerts, you can't sell your, uh, your uh, media there if you speak out against the party. And uh, it's an incredibly lucrative market. So I just wanted to ask, in terms of some of the, the creativity we're seeing from the protesters, um, is it unique in that when we look at from a U.S. perspective, let's say the Vietnam War, when you had all these musicians, actors, actresses, everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Jane Fonda joining in, is that very different to what's happening in Hong Kong, where it's mostly a few cultural figures like uh, Denise speaking up and the rest are sort of like Jackie Chan going, what's, what's going on in Hong Kong? It's a really interesting question that you're asking, actually. And it's something that really, I think, I see a lot of angry discussions about on social media among young people um, and older people, I think, who, like you said, um, recognize a time that was different in Hong Kong. So, you know, something that people don't know very much about, perhaps, is that in 1989, after the June 4th um, incident, um, the crackdown in Tiananmen Square in Beijing, um, many, many uh, Hong Kong stars who are still famous now and still um, singing or acting or whatever now, uh, you know, came out and were crying on TV um, and, you know, said that they, you know, don't stand for this sort of violence in the Communist Party and that, you know, they're patriots, but they don't agree with what happened in a, in a very outspoken, virulent way. Um, there's really great footage of that, actually, that people can look up on the Internet. Um, but of course, back then, what's different was that China was not, um, like you said, this powerful market in every sector, entertainment or um, retail or manufacturing or whatever. You know, back then it was much poorer and Hong Kong obviously was uh, much richer as a proportion of um, the entire country's GDP or however you want to measure it. Um, and it does really irk people, I think. Um, you know, there was this recent uh, protest, pro-police uh, gathering at um, just a park near the government complexes. And there were some members of an old Hong Kong rock band. They were sort of around in the 70s. Um, the men in that band, they're called the Winners. Um, they all went to this protest. And also Tony Leung, uh, the Hong Kong actor, not uh, not Tony Leung Chiu Wai, Tony Leung Kafei. And a lot of people were really upset about that. And they, first of all, they were like, um, I didn't know that such and such was a pro-police person. And second of all, why do they bother going? And um, it really upset people. And I think that, uh, you know, people are drawing lines now in many, many ways, in many aspects of their lives, you know, drawing a line with um, celebrities who perhaps don't toe the same line as them. Uh, restaurants or businesses that, um, you know, are pro-China in some way, people might say, well, I'm not going to put my money there. I will go somewhere that's sort of a smaller, but a sort of conscientious business. Um, so yes, you mentioned Denise Ho. There are others who are outspoken. Dini Ip, um, she's very famous in the Chinese um, movie world, um, but she's much older. And I think maybe there's a sense that she has nothing to uh, she has very little to lose in the sense of, you know, lost contracts or something. Um, but uh, Anthony Wong also, a major LGBT icon. Um, 
they're really the three biggest names I think that are speaking out. But there are people who sort of post um more surreptitious or cryptic things on their uh, Instagram or Facebook or something. Um, sometimes you can even just like uh, like something on Instagram, like Charmaine Cher. She's uh, the star of that very huge um, uh, soap opera in China last year. Uh, you know about sort of imperial courtesan backstabbing. She's a very famous Hong Kong actress. I think she liked an Instagram post um, related to the protest, but it was a very sort of benign post at the beginning of June. And of course, she was immediately attacked on, on all corners from Chinese netizens, and that happens also to Taiwanese celebrities all the time. So you're right. This is a super different time to 1989 or the early 90s, and it's、um, incredibly courageous what Denise Ho is doing. And Yeah, there's very few people like her. Nobody like her, really. Why was the symbol of this bill that you know to an outsider like me? It's like okay, you know, you're not a billionaire and you're not a bookseller. Why would you care about an extradition bill? You're just a kid studying for your exams. Why did the sim the symbolism of this bill lead to this huge outpouring that obviously both the party and Carrie Lam did not expect? Um, well, you know that student that you mentioned could have posted something on Weibo or something that could have gone into trouble.、Um, people now realize this, and、um, you don't have to be a bookseller to be spirited away、uh, mysteriously and turning up in China.、Um, you know, there's some people who say, "Oh, that's extreme. Like, of course, that's not going to happen." Maybe, but the whole point is that. The goalposts keep moving, and the lines are not clear. The grounds for which somebody is supposed to be brought to China are not clear, and the government has repeatedly said, "Oh, we're trying to、um, refine the law and like allay people's concerns." But the bottom line is that there's just a complete lack of trust a in this government and the Hong Kong administration to sort of do the bidding of the people of the city as opposed to the bidding of the. Bosses in Beijing, first of all, and be clearly a complete lack of trust in the Communist Party.、Um, there's no naivety among protesters and large swathes of the population here about what、um, is possible in China. And it's interesting that、um, there were some interviews being given by、um, even a conservative but pro-business lawmaker here on a number of occasions who came as, who came out against the bill、um, along with his party. Because he said that a lot, a lot of people who do business in China, you know, people who have factories or just,、um, you know, someone who lives there part time and like comes back to Hong Kong on a weekend or something, they often don't know in the past、um, what they might have done that、uh, tread on the line and could have gotten them in trouble with the law. So he was speaking from a perspective of sort of like、um, not tycoons but sort of SME type, the sort of people who really help build the economy in the eighties and the nineties around. The Guangdong Po River Delta area.、Um, so yes, you're right. You don't. Um, you're not a bookseller. You're not.、Um, you know, a fugitive in the way that China often defines fugitives. You know, rich people who are running from the law or whatever. But the entire point is that you know, a journalist. You know, could also be in trouble.、Um, and people have for a long time counted on sort of the.、Um, Should I say Western trappings of democracy that we have in this hybrid system to protect them, and with one fell swoop, that law could override all of those trappings and render them moot and unable to save you in any of these circumstances. If we're under a system that does have elements of a liberalism, as as Hong Kong did before these protests, where、um, the chief executive is picked essentially with Beijing's blessing. 
It can't. It, it is not allowed to go through without what's essentially become sort of a a dual power sharing agreement with um, business elites in Hong Kong uh, and the party in China. And we know this as, as Hong Kong citizens. We've accepted it. Okay, you know, I'm going to go to my job. Uh, whatever, you know, I'm just a, a laborer, essentially, or I'm, you know, just a student working in an office. You know, I'm going to like uh, Kylie Jenner's new Instagram post, or I'm going to, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to go watch my favorite Spider-Man movie, and I'm going to go listen to my K-pop. That's my life. Why are these people who I think we can fairly say for the most of their lives are very apolitical, will never be in a government building, will never be writing for a newspaper why has the the symbolism or the how why is this bill resonated with them in a way that almost feels symbolic where they they're they're not necessarily looking at the politics but it's something deeper than that i think you're right i also sort of moved through life here sort of wondering you're right people are just eating at malls taking instagram pictures sort of um you know living up to the reputation of hong kong being this sort of apathetic place where people just you know care about material goods and making money and making money is very important and a place where real estate is unaffordable and people indeed spend many many hours of their life making money to save up to put down a down payment for an apartment um and I do often wonder myself, you know, do these people think about what's happening? And I think, um, you know, politically, I think that the bill shows that um, despite the veneer of what you say of people sort of having these superficial lifestyles, the the dis the dislike and the distrust of the government, there's just the feeling that there's just a like creeping mainland China stuff every day, day in, day out. I mean, you know, foreign observers or casual observers of Hong Kong don't really follow the minutiae of what's happening. But when you live here, it really is like every other day there is something. What I mentioned before about the bridge and the national anthem and all that, that's just like the tip of the iceberg. And I think that when you live here, you know, it's not possible to protest or whatever every day you know people have lives to get on with but there is really this feeling that there's just so much pent-up um anger and just disappointment and um you know what i said the real estate prices are part of that you know the you know walking past these like white elephant projects every day and you know thinking well you know i didn't i didn't want my money to be put to this and you know i guess the extradition bill was something that was um something that really galvanized people who already had so many dozens, hundreds of just um, things that they were already upset about at the government. And, um, you know, I think perhaps that's why more and more people did come out. So at first it was, um, you know, previous protests were like maybe tens of thousands of people. And then there was that one million one. And then there was like the two million one. Like more and more people were like waking up, I think, maybe to the um, harm of this law. And there were other things also that were getting people riled up in this process on top of all the other things that people were already upset about. Um, the police violence, for example, you know, a lot of maybe middle-aged or older people who are parents, for example, are very upset at what they saw as scenes of police um, hitting people, young, ch- young um, students with batons and obviously spraying them with uh, tear gas and pepper spray. So it was just like, there was just like the snowballing effect, I think. And um, now you see sort of maybe people who are... Um, maybe apathetic, the kind of like resigned type of people maybe waking up and saying, well, I will at the very least come out for a protest, even if I don't go the, go to the front line um, at LegCo or something. Um, so I think you can't underestimate that people carry a very deep-seated feeling of frustration and anger around with them every day, even if it doesn't look like they're very angry when they're getting hot pot for dinner or something. 
when we look at where the protesters are targeting um, or where we see um, the protesters feeling like having taken a space, um, I think we do need to talk about them storming Legco. What that meant for the protest itself, certain people feel that the protesters were allowed to take Legco or that indeed, you know, this was part of a strategy to frame the protesters as rioters, as Carrie Lam has been criticized for doing, and that um, this was all part of the state um, a strategy. Why did the protesters want to take Legco or that? I know it was not everyone, multiple, several hundred young, the vanguard of the protest, the most radical. Um, why did they want to take Legco and beyond Legco itself, where have been some of the spaces for the protesters that when they take it or when it becomes part of the protest, it acquires a stronger symbolic value than just the space itself? So obviously um, the Admiralty area is one space that people have continuously been taking or trying to take. That's really the, um, you know, where the LegCo building is situated, the government offices are there, so that um, the symbolic value of that is obvious. As for LegCo itself, you know, the stories that I've read and that are out there all say that it was a decision that was reached sort of um, there and then by, as you said, a bunch of vanguard, small group of protesters. It's not like it was pre-arranged, but obviously in all protest movements there's always a division between people who want to um escalate and you know saying that peaceful protests don't work and then people who say that you have to keep it peaceful sort of you know you know the sort of thing happens across uh, movements i've read about that in the civil rights movement in the us um in ukraine um you know so i don't think that's something that's unique to hong kong and clearly when people feel that you know we've been marching day in day out you know not just these last few weekends but for years now and nothing has changed i think it's understandable that people feel that if not violence then something needs to change as for Legco itself, I think that there's not much love for that institution or that building itself. Um, as you said before, it's, um, you know, really this uh, rigged political system that we have looks democratic from the outside, but, um, and, you know, gives people the feeling that they do, um, they are able to vote for, um, legislators and also in local district elections. Um, but, uh, it's rigged in favor of parties that are, very rich, very well funded because of money that comes from um, Beijing or pro-Beijing groups, as multiple um, uh, news articles have shown. And, um, you know, the people who are sort of pro-democracy, the sort of genteel lawyer groups um, always have much more difficulty getting into LegCo for those reasons. Um, so people have always sort of seen that um, this uh, chamber is not really working for the people, uh, not to mention all the seats that are already pre-allocated to big business sectors, the finance sector, the insurance sector. Sector, groups that obviously have very close um, interests with government uh, and don't really see any need for the system as it is now to change because it works in favor of them. Or real estate, for example, is another very powerful lobby um, in the chamber. So I suppose that's what drove beyond just like the raw need to sort of like um, get the uh, anger out on something, you know, the graffiti and the actions that uh, the protesters did once they had gotten into LegCo, um, whether you agree with what they did or not, shows that there was some level of thinking that went into what they decided to destroy, what they decided to keep, you know, keeping 
books or like, you know, keeping the drinks machine from being vandalized, uh, you know, spray painting the insignia, the Bahinia flower of the city, um, destroying the portraits of previous uh, presidents of Lechko, seen as um, very, very pro-Beijing people, for example. Um, you know, you can say that it's just um, a sheer orgy of violence if you are on that side, you know, the pro-police, pro-government side. Or on the other extreme, you can say that it was, you know, an act of sort of, um, you know, a very sophisticated act of really sticking it to the man where it needs to be stuck, I guess, if you want to put it that way. I think that if you're under a dictatorship, uh, the term riot becomes an Orwellian term to use if you're uh, enforcing control. So I... I thought it was a very powerful symbolic gesture. Within that, there's a, a couple things, though, that for people who are, are not familiar with Hong Kong history, and even for me, you know, having researched this, have left me puzzled. Why is the Union Jack, um, which, we, which we saw when they took Legco, they, they hung up or they were waving a Union Jack, what is the symbolism of the Union Jack, and can you unpack, or what have you been able to understand about the complexity of using a symbol that others might find in alliance with colonialism. Yeah, it's a very weird and divisive thing, actually. I think maybe for older people who very much sort of remember life um, in a previous time, a colonial time, when things perhaps, uh, you know, seemed more peaceful, easier, cheaper, for sure. Um, people had sort of generally higher incomes, more comfortable lives, sort of that generational divide that people see across um, developed societies all across the world in the US too, you know, the boomers versus um, young people now, that sort of similar narrative. So maybe for them, they don't think so much about the, I guess, what we are concerned now in our generation, the sort of um, uh, imperialistic, um, social justice sort of a way of looking at things. For them, it's just a very clear sort of life was better back then um, and it sucks now. So I'm obviously going to fly the insignia of the previous era. Um, maybe another way, another reason that people do it is just because of the optics. Like you said, it is um, uh, confusing and it does rile up um, people who are patriotic, um, quote-unquote, um, towards China. You know, nothing riles up um, the Global Times, the Chinese tabloid, more than things like that. Um, perhaps it's deliberately provocative in that way. Um, I don't really think that there's much level of sophistication that goes into the waving of that flag, really. I think it really is just also that people don't have anything else that they can turn to. There is no alternative symbol or flag or insignia that people can wave to express how much they dislike this administration and how much they want an alternative administration. And um, one thing that has been popping up a little bit recently is this sort of black um, Bauhinia flag that has been flown on a few occasions. Um, I'm not sure who designed that, but it's um, the Hong Kong flag is red with a Bauhinia flower in the middle. A black one has been flown at um, on July 1st. I think some members of Demacy still hoisted it. Uh, in central Hong Kong, and uh, it was also hoisted on the recent Sunday protests at the high-speed rail station. Um, people have been changing their Facebook profile pictures or Twitter profile pictures to a black uh, Bahinia flower if they support the protesters. So perhaps that one might be able to supplant the British um, iconography a little bit, but um, there will always be older people, I think, who are very nostalgic for that time and aren't really thinking very much about what you said, the um, difficulties of using a symbol like that. So Lenin walls are fascinating, I think, to a lot of academics. Uh, this sort of idea of like this mobile space of solidarity that can be created anywhere. But it, it, it's something that until I started looking into the protests, I had no idea what that term meant whenever I would read 
Lenin Wall. So what is a Lenin Wall? And then from your own observations or your own interviews with academics or civil rights leaders within Hong Kong or just with your fellow journalists, how have you come to feel about them or see them as an interesting part of the uh, protest strategy in Hong Kong? Um, just very briefly, it comes from a 2014 Lenin Wall that existed at the Umbrella Movement. Um, the main site of that, there was just um, post-it stuck on a concrete staircase that ended up sort of covering the entire um, length of that spiral staircase. And itself, the name itself comes from a similar thing in Prague, I think, that um, was inspired by John Lennon and people were using it to write lyrics from Beatles songs or whatever to express their political desires for freedom at the end of the 1980s, is my understanding. Um, and they've really just um proliferated and um took on a life of their own in hong kong these last few days even maybe um at the beginning people set up a lenin wall like at the main protest site in admiralty and i mean this a uh, current round of protests and then people were sort of creating mobile ones um you know oh there's a protest okay someone will just um put a wall here um oh there's um you know uh, a station here to get people to sign to vote oh we'll just um create a little space here to um put up post-its and then maybe people just thought that it was like a nice Im um colorful aesthetically pleasing uh sort of benign non-violent way of um getting the word out but also giving people a little bit of um space to express themselves and um you know in a time of huge emotional stress for a lot of people um so now you're seeing them really in every suburb every neighborhood train station what have you there is one in some way sometimes it could be a couple post-it sometimes it's the entire length of an underpass is covered with them um, they're important in a way uh, that people say they're important in a way of getting a message out to people who are maybe um, elderly people or sort of more conservative people who live in maybe large um, housing estates who are not typically sort of your typical middle class or um, well-educated sort of student who would be going down to these protests. Um, you know, that's the imagery of like what the divide is in this movement. And uh, what is like a nonviolent way that encourages people to have, at the very least, read your notes and then perhaps have a civil discussion about them. And that's really been seen as one way that they can do that. And I think that's part of the strategy now where people are saying, you know, we can't just keep having these protests in these same downtown areas. Um, many people are not going to travel from, let's say they live in a suburb close to the Chinese border or something. They're not going to spend an hour and a half or two hours getting down to Central or something to go to a protest, but we can take the message to them. And um, so this is one way that they do it. And um, but people have become very zealous about it, actually sort of guarding them 24 hours and um, coming down at 3 a.m. to respond when somebody's coming to tear them down. Um, I'm still trying to make sense of them myself, the efficacy of them, the passion with which people are tending to them. But it clearly is inflaming something on both sides because we've seen multiple incidences actually where police have had to get involved because of um, angry people, pro-government or pro-China people coming to either tear them down or cause a disturbance or something. There's something about this that is um, upsetting people on the other side um, of the protest. And uh, I'm not quite sure what it is yet. But um, as we speak, the wars are still going up. Altercations are still happening. There is a division um, also among the protesters themselves. Uh, what is the point of this? this? Is just another like boring, uninteresting, you know, thing that isn't really going to put pressure on the government. Let's not waste time doing this versus people who are like, it doesn't matter what we do as long as we do something. Everyone has a different level of commitment, a level of participation that they're willing to do. Just let everyone do their part and get the message out. There's no harm in having these bits of post-its up everywhere. 
For my uh, understanding of another symbol, um, it comes from individuals looking at the downfall of the umbrella uh, revolution movement um, and seeing that when violence was brought against the state, uh, it allowed the state to respond. And you, unless you really have the masses on your side um, in, in the millions, you're going to lose every time. So in the West and some of the more far left circles that I'll read, you know, even even things like, let's say, Jacobin or um, Dissent or uh, The Baffler, things that, uh, you know, center, center, left, left. They will look at things like, let's say, the free hugs, which <laughs> there's all these um, sites now in Hong Kong for if you're feeling stressed, get a free hug. And Hong Kong protesters recycling. You'll see that all on Twitter. And sometimes you'll see snarky comments from people who don't live in Hong Kong. Like, oh, you know, these protesters are so tame. We have anti-fa, you know, we punch Nazis in the face and, you know, spray paint buildings and destroy property. What from just your own experience as a, as a journalist, and I'm sure studying or um, reporting on protests both in Hong Kong but in other uh, Western nations, what is what are your thoughts on sort of these more cuddly symbols of protest, or these more these symbols of of trying to maintain dignity as opposed to destroy, uh, as opposed to a destructive impulse? How have you felt in terms of the these more friendly sides of of what's going on within the Hong Kong protests? I think just at least from the Hong Kong protesters' point of view. Um, you know, I don't, again, I don't really know why, how, how the recycling or the picking up rubbish thing became so big. But I think that one refrain that I do hear a lot is people don't want to give um, the government or the people who don't support them any excuse to say that they are thuggish in any way or, you know, uncivilized or something. You know, they want to put on their best, put, put their best face forward to make it look like, you know, we take pride in what we're doing. We are not being, you know, paid by the US or the CIA or whatever, as many of you like to say that we are. You know, we are just citizens who love and care about our home. And one way that we're going to show the level of care that we have is by picking up after ourselves and also helping out others, helping out journalists, helping out other protesters and um, standing our ground even when, you know, they're being shouted at or spat at or sometimes punched by people who, you know, don't agree with them. Um, you know, whether or not you think that that stance works is, um, I think is a personal feeling, but I think that, um, you know, every, everybody is very mindful, um, of just how they come across in the, A, the international eye and also B, local media and to local government. But I have to ask, because there have been suicides, uh, recently, uh, from, uh, particularly younger protesters, I believe four suicides now at this point, um, from people who felt overwhelmed about the political situation of Hong Kong. I feel that at least in the West, this is my personal opinion. This is not representative of uh, anything besides my own thoughts, that in the era of sort of social media and the influencer, that we've again put a premium on sort of martyrs or individual figures within protesters because technology is habituating us more and more to individualize and atomize our lives. And what I've seen in the Hong Kong protests is fascinating in that there's numerous artwork, like we were talking about those free hug clinics, 
there's a sense of um, we don't want martyrs. We, we do not want this protest needing to be galvanized around the suffering or the death or destruction of, of people or things. And I'm, I'm wondering uh, within the protests, how have they talked about the idea of martyrs, some of the suicides that have taken place and how they want to see themselves? Do they want, do they want to keep it horizontalist as, as we've discussed, or is there a craving or a need for another figure like a Joshua Wong or a Denise Ho to rise up and, and lead the people? I don't really see any desire for a leader. In fact, people are very allergic almost to anybody trying to sort of take leadership. I mean, there is some leadership in the sense that somebody has to apply to get a permit to organize the protest and somebody has to sort of organize the protest along the way as it's happening. But they're not famous. They're not personalities necessarily that you or I or anybody would recognize or being asked to go on the news or anything. So they're just being seen as sort of, um, I guess, volunteers or just like workers for the protest movement. Um, and in terms of the suicides, um, I just want to clarify here that not all of them have been confirmed to be suicides. So uh, we use a mixture of, um, you know, possible suicide slash perhaps accidents. We're not really sure about the first one, for example. Yeah, that word martyr has been used uh, a lot, actually. I've heard it. Uh, I see it a lot being written about uh, on social media, just um, uh, on threads, chat groups and stuff. Um, it's something that didn't happen in the 2014 protests, and it's a very new thing, a very new emotion for people to process. And obviously a lot of people are pinning the blame on it, um, on the government and saying that, you know, they forced these young people into this, um, taking this road, you know, you've left people with no choice. You don't listen to people when they do come out, um, peacefully for years, we've been protesting or telling you that youth are unhappy. You don't really take youth policies or youth outreach seriously. You pay lip service to it through all these sort of expensive but pointless initiatives and this is what happens now when you don't listen to young people so that uh narrative it has become extremely important to the protests i think um another way that the uh suicides have sort of brought people together is um in a way that um people are caring about each other a lot more i think there's so much discussion about um mental health that i'm seeing in a city that, you know, obviously does not really place a premium on mental health in any way. I, you know, I never really see people talking about it, you know, much to the detriment of its um, citizens, I think. And now there's all these sort of uh, groups, volunteers who are coming together, volunteers of um, counselors or religious figures or just people who are involved in um, psychiatry in any sort of way, just offering their services to people, you know, either at a protest or a memorial service, for example, um, you know, offering on the ground support or a Facebook group or just a number that they can call. Um, but also there's a lot of artwork that's being created to um, not just remember the people who have lost their lives, but also to tell people, hey, you know, don't don't do this. We're here for you. Um, we cannot lose a single one of you if we're to be fighting and continuing down this path of resistance. We need all of you together. Um, you know, like a slogan that's repeated a lot is uh, we cannot lose even one of you. Um, so there's this real feeling of um, coming together, I think. It's a very new thing to the city that I've never seen before. Um, you know, for a city that's extremely nonviolent and, um, you know, pretty benign most days, um, it really has shocked a lot of people to the core, I think. So the last um, question I wanted to ask is obviously in the U.S., I think the last, um, the protests that really have resonated with us, we don't remember all these complexities. We can't keep the database of a podcast in our head. It becomes boiled down to 
key moments and key phrases. We had, we are the 99%. Then we had Black Lives Matter. And these are things that no matter what, you know, the, the complexities of the movement, if we win or lose, they never can be taken away from the people who uh, were protesting within these movements. They'll always remember that the that message and all the complexity it contains. I'm wondering within Hong Kong, um, what are the phrases that maybe are starting to become how this protest will be defined? Um, obviously, Xiangang Jiao, you know, does not. It, when you hear it, you know the you know Hong Kong, let's go. It doesn't sound like something that has you know a full-throated political anger or or passion behind it. But obviously, it's come to mean something for the protesters, and you see it everywhere. What are some of the? How are the protesters? maybe boiling down some of their messages into these phrases and what do you think maybe will be some of the phrases we remember no matter how uh, this all turns out a lot of it is actually uh funny and i don't really know if that's some if that's a thing that's specific to cantonese or it's just a sort of um very severe defense mechanism you know i forget who maybe um you know milan kunder or something talked about how hu it was very important to maintain humor and the ability to make fun of um uh leaders or figures in an authoritarian government um and I think that's very much been the MO of these protests, just um, a lot of slogans that are, are born out of a revolve around things that the police have said or the government have said, usually interspersed with the expletive of some kind that are being worn on T-shirts or written on protest banners. Um, you know, so things like, um, you know, something that per a police said, oh, don't touch my behind or something, don't touch my butt, essentially something that uh, a policeman had yelled at a protester or something, just like things that have become memes are now being uh remembered as sort of like the central um slogans of this protest movement and it's not because you know they are speaking directly to like the extradition bill or something it's just i think a way for people to at once remember the brutality or um you know just uh making making light of it but at the same time remembering that um this is something very serious that has happened and that they want to carry it around with them so people will wear t-shirts that have those slogans on it or carry keychains that have those slogans on it um another one that's quite big i think is um it doesn't sound good in english but just withdraw the two words withdraw uh boy in cantonese um why is this so big it's because as um we know that carol lamb's made multiple gestures to sort of say that the bill is um you know dead essentially um it took her many stages to get to saying it was dead but she hasn't used the word withdraw so that word is um, being called out a lot at protests, just just those two characters themselves. And then there's um, another one that I see international media latch onto a lot lately is Be Water, My Friend, the Bruce Lee uh, slogan. Uh, and I think people are quite proud of that. You know, for some reason, Hong Kong people seem to be spectacular at self-organizing and responding to things in a very quick way. And uh, being water is one of those ways, I think, just, um, you know, uh, being fluid and, you know, changing, um, keeping people on their toes and um, making decisions last minute or organizing through social media and just immediately taking action, whatever that might be, you know, coming together to do a flash mob or um, coming to a protest or printing new posters or printing t-shirts or something, just the speed at which people are creating things is, um, I've never seen it anywhere else. I don't know what that points to, the industriousness or innovation of people here, I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, like I said, so many of the things are in Cantonese. It's very difficult for me to translate what they are, but um, 
you know, you do see people sort of walking around in T-shirts that say things like, I am a Hong Konger, uh, or Hong Kongian in Cantonese. Um, again, seemingly a sort of, um, you know, uninteresting, anodyne thing to say, but actually extremely powerful in the sense that people are asserting their identity as a Hong Kong person rather than a Chinese person. Certainly. I think that many uh, Taiwanese activists uh, would say that uh, post-Sunflower um, Revolution, that the uh, polling indicated a huge spike in, in people of all demographics identifying as Taiwanese. And I think that's something you see when in these colonized, uh, I don't know what the correct term is, uh, areas where the people are not able to, to self-govern or governed by a foreign force, that uh, these protests animate a very strong sense of identity. And certainly Hong Kong, despite the complications of its history with colonialism and, and imperialism, has managed to form an extremely strong cultural identity around language, place, and, and sense of self. And it, it certainly seems like all those things are being reawakened and they speak far louder than Instagram or a Spider-Man movie. Yeah, um, the Taiwan example is a good one. But, you know, in Taiwan's um, case, it is self-governing. Um, I mean, it's too complex to get into here. But, um, you know, here it goes into all kinds of things like um, language, culture, um, geography, history, um, just every aspect of life, I think, where people can or protesters can uh, assert themselves as being different to um, mainland China or the the way of being a Chinese person that mainland China wants them to be, they are quite quick and strong in rejecting that. Yeah, I, I just say to everyone, you have to study what's going on in Hong Kong. Nowhere else do you get terms like fish, fishball riots when, you, when you're doing research on protest. Um, Isabella, this was really wonderful. Was there anything that we touched upon that you'd like to clarify? Or was there anything that we didn't touch upon that's just important or you, you'd like to say? Yeah, I think um, I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, I did say or we said many times that the protests are leaderless, but I do want to say that this doesn't mean that um, you know, groups or people are not able to sort of make their voices heard and put a name to the group or the person. Um, so, for example, one group that uh, I think has been extremely interesting and prominent in these protests is Mothers. Um, and they've organized two very big sit-ins uh, at a central square uh, where multiple thousands of people went, just sitting on the ground, um, you know, repeating slogans, listening to very angry tirades by mums. Um, and you know, mums, well, ang when mums are angry, it's very, um, to the point and scary and people listen to mums. And, um, I think it's interesting because it tells you that the issue of sort of, um, youth well-being and sort of police brutality against young people has really, like I said, galvanized people in a way that maybe it didn't even in 2014. Um, it's become something that has brought people together. And you do hear a lot of people say things like, um, oh, I don't usually protest or, oh, I'm not, you know, oh, I don't support violence. But when I saw this happening to our kids or just anybody's kids, like it really made me feel heartbroken or angry at the government. And um, so they've been a very interesting driving force, I think, um, in getting things um, out there, getting the message out there, not just sit-ins. They also or, they also organized this petition, um, like basically mums who are angry and they were upset that Carrie Lam had hijacked the, you know, someone like her does not have the right to call herself the mother of Hong Kong people. You know, a mother would never allow police to fire rubber bullets at the kids, that kind of thing. 
And um, other groups that I think are interesting, also uh, secondary school students have also been extremely um, uh, active, I think, sort of organizing street um, stores, I guess, um, you know, handing out flyers, um, you know, being active on Instagram and social media just to, you know, get their message out. You know, when you have kids, I think the youngest person who was arrested in Lechko in the storming was 14 years old. Um, you know, when you think about the fact that kids that young are getting to the front line, it raises questions about, well, A, the city's youth policy and B, um, how useful is the sort of uh, patriotic education or quote unquote brainwashing that the Beijing government has been trying to do uh, in China and in Hong Kong for so many years? Um, how is it possible that somebody who's 14 could be arrested? But I mean, there's so many other groups that I can't even get into, just like doctors, lawyers, and within doctors, there's sort of subsets of doctors, physiotherapists, um, you know, teachers, obviously. Um, it's just every sector of life has some sort of level of organization going. Small businesses, they also organize a strike of their own on June 12th. Um, so I think it's this feeling that, you know, you know, it's a Goliath. It's um, a big oligopolistic economy, uh, political system that we're fighting against, but it doesn't preclude um, people of all shapes and sizes and, um, you know, whatever their job is from taking part in some way. And how has covering protests complicated sort of journalistic um, requirements or guidelines. How are journalists who are from Hong Kong, born there, who have come to really identify with the city and its culture, able to cover the protests in a way that uh, maintains journalistic guidelines? And and how has sort of um, the global creep of uh, terrorizing media, has that made its way to Hong Kong? Or are protesters um, not... Uh, uh, mishandled or mistreated or assaulted by uh, police and the state uh, in Hong Kong currently? I mean, I work for not local news organizations, so I would have to go through the sort of normal um, process anyway of um, seeking comment from people like police or something if I'm writing about them, you know, trying to present different arguments as far as I can. Um, and uh, But also, there is this thing that also is happening in the US, obviously, that no matter who you work for, if somebody doesn't agree with the position of your, or perceived position of your organization or the journalist, um, you'll just be called fake news um there is some of that going on here too so in a way it's almost like you know if you're already somebody who's um pro-beijing you probably wouldn't be reading like a cnn or a bbc story and thinking oh yeah that's like really balanced and like yeah i'm really gonna get my news from them you know you're probably going to read one of the many many uh chinese funded or pro-beijing or pro-government newspapers or tv stations or something that are in operation um so there is uh, a clear bifurcation already anyway here um, just like anywhere else, really. And um, yeah, in terms of um, that, uh, the global problem facing journalism, it is also happening here. But the big thing here, I think, is, um, like I mentioned, uh, organizations that are funded by China or Chinese money versus things that are more local and really the only newspaper that people perceive here as being um, not pro-Beijing, but definitely very biased towards the protesters would be Apple Daily, uh, which you also have in Taiwan. And um, uh, one target of people's ire is the local free-to-air broadcaster, TVB, which has been seen, which is perceived to be pro-China for many, many years. People think that it presents very imbalanced um, coverage of what's happening. You know, lots of footage of 
protesters, you know, doing such and such, but not much focus on、um, police brutality, for example.、Um, so yeah, the journalistic world here is not immune to the same sorts of discourse and conflict that are happening in the U.S. or elsewhere. Thank you very much, Isabel. I really appreciated uh, you uh, giving us your time today. Yeah, thanks. It was fun. Thank you.